0: My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can simply go to iTunes and write a brief review. That would really help me out. (laughs) Number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Given that 95% of my income has been from keynote speaking and the last keynote I did in Panama was on February the 4th and I don't see any, any other ones coming on the horizon it would also really make a difference. At any rate, welcome to Singularity FM everyone and we are in for a treat today because today our guest on this podcast is Glenn Heemstra. Glenn is perhaps the most experienced futurist that I know of currently at the moment with probably approaching 40 years of experience in the field. He's also the author of multiple books uh, on futurism, and you can find more both about Glenn and his work on futurist.com, a very easy domain to remember, and that would also kind of date Glenn that he was really one of the pioneers and one of the first people in the business because he managed to get futurist.com. Anyway, that's a long way of saying, Glenn
1: Himstra, welcome to Singularity FM. Thank you, Nicola. It's nice to be here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Fantastic, Glenn. I've been doing a deep dive into everything about Glenn Himstra uh, for the last five days, I think, and I'm also very stoked and super uh, looking forward to our conversation. But let's presume that I've never uh, learned anything about you ever before and I haven't seen or read any of your work. And I were to meet you in the good old days somewhere at a conference or at a futurist event, and I were to ask you, who is Glenn Heemstra? How would you introduce yourself in a sentence or two?
1: That's uh, that's challenging, actually. Um, I would say that, that I have been for many years a professional futurist, uh, founder of futurist.com. And I really focus on and have for all these years, focus on working with enterprises of various types to help them define, especially a preferred future for themselves and to understand more clearly how they might be able to move toward it. So that's been my life's work since uh, and a very early career as a college professor. So founder of is the is the key phrase for understanding me.
0: Very cool. And if I were to make this even more challenging and ask you to kind of explain who you are in a sentence or less without having the opportunity to use the word futurist, how would you do
1: that? Who are, Who is Glenn Heemstra in a few words? Uh, Glenn Heemstra is a person in, you know, interested in how whole systems work, trying to grasp Uh, the past, present, and future, and kind of a whole picture of how things fit together. And I kind of have this constant desire to understand why things happen, how things happen, uh, from a holistic perspective. And that's been true since I was a young kid.
0: Very interesting. And, And we're going to go all into that. But perhaps you already mentioned several interesting terms, terms such as futurist, and preferred future. So let's break it and take it sort of a step by step here. And let's start first with what is a futurist?
1: To me, a futurist is one who, who grasps the concept that we as human beings have this capacity to uh, remember, understand the past, to live fully in the present, and to anticipate and dream about the future. And uh, what a what a futurist does is to sort of ratchet those human abilities, those natural human abilities, up one level, and turn it into a profession, a um, something that you really seek to do at a at a professional level, so that you maximize this human capacity to remember, to live, and to anticipate and dream, and then put that together in a way that leads to a uh, hopefully a better world and and hopefully a uh, a, a good life for yourself.
0: You know, there's two schools of thought here uh, wh- when it comes to futurists and futurism. One is the sort of a hardcore professional uh, man on the stage uh, expert kind of he's there and we're all down here kind of view and the other one is and, and according to that first view basically leave the future to the futurists and the rest of the population should basically follow the experts just like any other scientist etc or expert in any particular field now the other view is a lot more democratized and decentralized the other view is that says something like and because I'm kind of Canadian here in Canada, I'll use a Canadian metaphor. The other view would say, well, look, Wayne Gretzky was a famous futurist. Why? Because he said the key to his success was that he didn't uh, skate where the puck was, but where the puck was going to be, which in the field of hockey, in that professional sports context is a kind of a, an exercise of futurism you had to sort of anticipate where the puck would be so that you're best positioned to benefit from that and to score a goal or to prevent a goal to be scored in your own uh, side so which school of thought do you embrace and why
1: well if i if i have to choose i choose the democratizing side uh, but, but i am i am um I suppose, as a systems thinker, I try to put these things together. Uh, on the democratizing side, I've often said to, to organizations that I've worked with or audiences that I've spoken to, as you do as a keynote speaker, that one of my goals at the end of the engagement uh, is that everybody walks out the door and thinks of themselves as a kind of amateur futurist, somebody who's now capable of thinking about the future in, in a new and more effective way. Uh, and I have been hesitant to embrace the overprofessionalization of the futures field, um, which has, I think been been the trend. I, I, this may not be quite right, but it seems like the trend over the last twenty years or so has been to try to define the futures field in a more and more professional kind of way, more and more academic kind of way, and to, in a sense, uh, and sometimes quite actively, as a matter of fact, uh, try to create uh, uh, delimiters or boundaries around who gets to be a futurist and who doesn't get to be a futurist. Uh, and I understand the, the the desire to have a professional credential and and the the value of that. Uh, and and when I'm when somebody asks me how do I become a futurist. the first thing I tell them is, well, there are some schools that you can go to and there are certificate programs and so on. You can train in order to acquire these skills and these perspectives. So I think that that's a very valuable thing. But uh, when I'm working with a group, I'm really on the democratizing side. I really want them to start thinking like a futurist and in some certain sense, think themselves as a futurist, somebody who's concerned about future generations, who wants to learn from kind of from deep history about how things work and so on. So I perhaps I'm somewhere in the middle, but, but I lean toward the democratizing side while recognizing that the value of professional credentials and, and in fact, encouraging people to, to go get provincial professional credentials uh, when that's appropriate for them to do that. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I have to say, I feel the same way, even though I'm leaning even more so on the democratizing side, simply because I know of many futurists historically who have missed uh, amazing uh, sort of phenomenons and events, uh, many experts in many fields, um, and and, and uh, that... I mean, the list is endless. I even watched the whole documentary uh, on the topic where they were saying that a monkey throwing darts uh, or flipping a coin, uh, looking at the 20th century major events would have had similar or at least, or maybe even better success than the experts. Uh, and I mean, you're a, a former political science student uh, and you know, like me, uh, even more so than me, because you're of a previous generation, one great example of failure of futurism was, for example, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, no one of the experts who had decades and decades about of experience and expertise of the Soviet Union, and they all kind of missed it. It, it all happened very fast and, and as a shock, and especially perhaps the, the relatively peaceful nature of the collapse of that sort of gargantuan empire, one of the greatest military powers. So, so, yeah. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah.
1: Well, number one, I've got a piece of the Berlin Wall sitting right up there on the windowsill. Wow. Uh, yeah, which I didn't uh, collect myself. Somebody who was in Berlin brought it back to me because they knew, knew that I was interested in it. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was a that was an amazing event. Now, now, in retrospect, of course it's quite possible to see all the steps that, that were leading, leading up to it. Sure. Which is actually one, one of the things that good futures should do is try to really understand these historical sequences and, uh, and how they led to misperceptions of the future and and the mistakes that we, we make in, in anticipating the future. Um, but that, yeah, that was uh, an, an amazing historical event. I remember talking with my mother and I, she, uh, she immigrated from Holland to the United States in 1937 and uh and was born in 1920 lived to be 90 so i thought she saw a lot that that happened in the 20th century into here in the early 21st century and and i remember when she said uh she said you know i can believe almost everything that happened in in the 20 in in my lifetime airplanes and computers and all these kinds of things but she, she said the thing that really surprised me is when when the berlin wall came down she said i never thought that i would ever see something like that and so these you know, it's a more sociological, political, um, therefore, you know, uh, an event that has many more variables impacting it that make it much harder to anticipate, but still I think, you know, it doesn't take much unpacking of what was going on in the Gorbachev era and even in the era before that, uh, to see that this was coming, that this was, was very, very like, likely to happen. Um, but you're you're right. Um, but you know, experts. Th- this is a problem, I, I think, for the academic futures field. At least it's a, certainly a challenge for the academic futures field, which is the more you, um, the, well, the more you, you you create this field of expertise. Of course, in a- academia, that that you you become more and more and more specialized, and in a certain sense, your field of view becomes smaller and smaller, which is ironic, given. you're in the future studies field or in today's language the strategic foresight field and you find yourself looking at smaller and smaller and narrower and narrower points of view rather than the other other way other way around which you would think would be associated with with our field uh but but that's that's been the traditional problem of all academic fields is that you People become more and more specialized the nature of the whole academic requirement writing theses and writing dissertations and so on sort of requires you to become more and more specialized and so that's a constant danger in in academe and um and i don't know that future studies has fallen into that all that much but but it certainly has become characteristic of our field more than it would have been 30 years ago or so
0: yeah and to be honest that's one of the reasons why i feel very uncomfortable when someone's calling me a futurist, uh, because first I want it to be a more sort of decentralized and democratized thing. And and maybe you can even go as far as claiming that what makes one of the things that makes our species unique is our ability to contemplate the future. Uh, Homo sapiens, that is. So that's one reason. And another reason is having all those kind of famous failures behind and and the fact that expertise while very useful and and I always like you recommend self-education and self-improvement as a never-ending pursuit and yet I'm constantly aware and humbled by the gargantuan failure of the past and perhaps none more notable than Francis Fukuyama who not only didn't foresee the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but then went on famously to proclaim that that was actually uh, the end of history. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I couldn't imagine one kind of a shocking turn of event that no one foresaw then only to be topped off by another prediction that is utterly misplaced.
1: Yeah, that's that, that was a I remember I clearly remember when that happened uh and it, you know it, it had certainly a kind of a, an emotional appeal to it to think that we've arrived yeah. that um, we that are the pinnacle democracy, yeah democracy uh, and, and capitalism as currently understood were where everything has been headed all along and now we're there uh and we'll make incremental progress in these two areas from now on but we've arrived and uh, and then that to be um overturned really quickly was it was a bit of a shock and 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 you know it raises an interesting question about the you know the cyclical nature of history which is another interesting debate uh i think uh for those who are interested in in the future to uh, to engage in is what uh you know does history operate in cycles does it operate in spirals is is it just a, a linear progression um you know what are the what are the dangers that will fall back into some uh, kind of pre-scientific age, all of those kinds of things, um, but and all of those are very different from the concept that we're at the end of history and we've arrived and and there's nowhere else to go other than small incremental changes.
0: Right, and speaking of history, uh, from a sort of a holistic point of view, what do you make of that kind of Cleodynamics, Turchin's idea of Cleodynamics, because you're talking about the history rhymes or repeats itself, what do you make of Cleodynamics? I even— read an article by Turchin, written around 2010 or so, where he allegedly kind of predicted the current polarization and, and sort of a civil confrontation uh, within the United States uh, and and all of that.
1: Whereabouts do you fall? You know, uh, well, I'm, I have to say that, that I've only, only just become familiar with Turchin and Cleo dynamics. Uh, and so probably don't know it as well as you do, and it's a really interesting concept. In fact, I was thinking of him as I was just mentioning cycles. I used to talk about the Kondratiev cycles a lot, uh, in as related to economics, and and the Turchin idea that uh, that there are these very long long wave cycles, highly predictable uh, uh, ebbs and flows in the nature of a society based on. Um, Basically, the, the size of the elite, the elite class, and whether there's enough opportunity for them. What I don't like about it is the the, the division of of classes and the dependence of history on just uh, just that. That 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 strikes me as a little bit limited. Um, but and I, and I probably need to understand his, his work a little bit more. But but what do, what does catch my attention is is the idea that uh, that there are deep cycles. Uh, even and and it's it's quite obvious when, when you look at other species, which he does. And he came out of out of you know the field of biology and ecology. And uh, when you look at other species, it's, we we totally accept well there are cycles in population growth and population decline, and so on. And, and we just sort of accept that that's normal. And why we would think that would be necessarily different for the human species is interesting. Other than that, we have this brain power to anticipate the future learn from the past and so on, which, which could make us unique if we really know how to engage that power. Um, so bottom line is, I think, I think it is something really worth uh, paying attention to for the futures field. Uh, and, um, and I'm, I'm going to, I actually intend to, to study it a little bit more here uh, in, in upcoming uh, months to get a little bit more familiar with it. Um, I think it's intriguing.
0: Yeah, I invited him. Oh, I have to share, I'm personally extremely skeptical, especially after reading his original 2010 piece, where it was sufficiently vague and ambiguous that, you know, you certainly, in my opinion, couldn't call it a prediction. You can you can say that he kind of got the shape of events right for a number of reasons. Whether that was a coincidence or not is a whole other debate. Uh, you know, I've had, Cases on my podcast where in 2013 I was having a, a conversation with uh, Chris habels Gray, and then we kind of the two of us predicted the supposedly predicted the the, the not only the global pandemic, but I even blurted, "Oh, uh, I just uh, even read that the coronavirus is extremely dangerous." Right, So was that a prediction in 2013 in my podcast? And of course, the name of my podcast is Interview the Future. So I can go and start making claims. Yes, I foresaw it. But the reality is absolutely not. We kind of mentioned it in a conversation as one potential future scenario. And to be honest, I had forgotten about it until I rewatched it seven years later, and I was even surprised with my own self. So was that a prediction? I, I don't, consider that a prediction at all that was just a lucky guess
1: yeah well you know that that prediction uh which 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 was a good one uh or uh Churchin's work um you know what it what, what one could argue that that what it neglects is the ability of human beings to make choices once they understand the situation that they're in more clearly he has a certain inevitability to the patterns that he suggests um, which he believes have been repeated many times in history and therefore in a certain sense we don't have a choice but but my bias has always been that the future is in fact this is a phrase i've often used the future is a choiceful event that it is it isn't something that just happens Uh, and that the further out you look the more the wider the array of choices that you can see And and that's the advantage, by the way, of doing long-term future views rather than short-term future views. Because if you're looking 20 years from now or 50 years from now or even further, 100 years, you can see all kinds of choices that human beings are going to make between now and then that are going to determine, you know, what happens. And so um, to uh, describe a pattern as though it's inevitable when it comes to human beings and human societies seems like a fool's errand. It's kind of like saying we're at the end of history. Uh, in, a, in a sense that uh, that everything is done and nobody has any choices anymore and it's just all going to be uh, played out in this, this quite logical way when when in fact, uh, you know, tomorrow somebody's going to decide something that's going to surprise everybody or discover something that surprises everybody that we never anticipated and the world changes.
0: Well, in that case, uh, the most famous example or counter example of what you just say is of course Ray Kurzweil who has a very specific timeline of how events would unfold and he claims that if you look at uh, computational power and even technological advancement overall since let's say the the US census of the 1890s onwards until today uh, we have this sort of exponential graph graph that's not being influenced by anything not civil not wars not World War one not recession not World War two nothing really um, And he's gone on the record to make these claims, very specific claims, uh, about certain kind of benchmarks, such as uh, passing the Turing test, artificial general intelligence, etc. So how do we square these two, and and whereabouts do you… Stand-on well, yeah, that no,
1: industry when I, you know I've, I've shown his 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 curves and his exponential curves in terms of uh, growth of artificial intelligence or the, the, uh, the we might even just say the, simply the number of transistors in a in a computer, um, and 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 it does seem like those are. Are, are very uh, impervious to what's going on around them in, in human society. Those technological development curves, we can apply it now to solar energy, for example. Of course, there may be some upper bound at which you know you, you sort of reach a limit, but but those curves do appear to be very steady, but they don't tell you that much about what human beings are going to do with these technologies or with these capabilities or what these capabilities are going to do to humans. That's much more suppositional uh, and much more uh, subject to uh, nefarious actors doing bad things with them and good actors doing good things with them and and uh, naive actors doing things that <laughs> that uh, uh, maybe surprise everybody uh, and so on. so we don't to say for example, that computers are going to uh, be more intelligent that is have the n- more, transistors and connections in the human brain. I don't know what Kurzweil's most recent year for that was, but at one point it was 2028 or something like that, as I recall. Uh, That may be true, although I think it's actually slowing down a little bit. I think it's curves of- Actually, if I remember
0: correctly, the human brain claim was that by 2018, 2019, we would have the computational power of a human brain, which is 10 to the 16th, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And then by 2028, he says the passing of the Turing test. And he has actually a famous bet with, uh, what's the guy's name, Rich Kapoor or something like that,
1: mm-hmm. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. on long bets, uh, which is for, I think, $20,000 or something about going to charity about weather. And they're very specific about what that yeah. Turing test is supposed to be. Uh, however, let me just say that this is precisely why I love your work so much, because you nailed the heart of the matter, in my opinion, here. Uh, and I've, famously had a, a big uh, sort of heated debate here on this podcast with Robin Hanson, who was kind of making the argument, well, it doesn't matter whether you're in Nazi Germany or in uh, communist Eastern Europe or in the West, a car is a car and, and the laws of physics are the laws of physics and optimal design is optimal design. And my response to that kind of stems from your point of view is like, yes, the laws of physics and all those things may be such. But how we use them, why we use them, towards what purposes, and what we use them to do to humans with them varies. So that's where it makes a difference. And to me, it doesn't matter how, uh, what kind of technology we have, but what we use it for and what we use it towards which always makes the difference. And surely, if you're a gypsy, a Jew, uh, a homosexual, uh, a disabled person, it would matter whether you're living in Nazi Germany or in the West. Uh, clearly, all those things matter for millions and millions of people. Uh, so I don't care about the technology. I care about the impact of the technology of the people. And you nail that straight on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, I've, I've worked with, there's an interesting story to tell about that. I think, you know, my, my emphasis has been partly because of who I learned a way of thinking about the future from, and, and we can tell some stories about that if you want, but sure, uh, and the, that the emphasis has always been that the ultimate question is what is, what is a preferred future? What is our preferred future? What is your preferred future? Um, and my, my, the bias that I have that if you change that image of the future, then you see other things to do today. So the future, and you're familiar with me saying this, the future creates the present. That, that if you change what you are going what you expect is going to happen in the future by coming up with a better forecast, or if you change what you think is possible in the future by brainstorming some ideas, or if you come to a conclusion that this is our vision, this is our dream, this is what we really want to accomplish, any one of those images or all of those images put together cause you even unconsciously, to do different things in the present, so that the most powerful way to change what's happening today is to change people's image of the future.
0: Uh, Yeah, I want you to to extrapolate on that a little bit, because I think it's a key point, and I think the vast majority of us get it upside down. We always see that the say that the present is the is a product of the past and that you know we are where we are because of the past. But you say the exact opposite thing. You say the present is a result of the future. And so if you wanna change the present, you have to change the future, which is totally counterintuitive and I love it. I even read a fantastic article that I'm going to link to uh on your blog on on that topic. But unpack that a little bit for us yeah, and then and then, please connect it to to the three types of future that you're talking about preferred, possible, and probable.
1: yeah. Uh, I, I'll do that. The the, the, the the concept does not deny that that decisions were made in the past that gave us the world that we have today. We decided, for example, to to uh, organize our cities around automobiles. Uh, and so we have these massive streets and and so on in American cities and many cities around the world. Uh, that organization audibles and and people did that in the past and that's what we got now if you want to change that and many people would like to you've got to enable people to see a different vision Uh, and maybe that's a a visual picture or maybe it's a description or maybe it's just a conversation that they have Uh, in a certain sense at a simple psychological level it's the self-fulfilling prophecy uh and um and I often have cited i remember this really came home to me once watching uh, the olympics and i and i was watching uh, a diver uh and they were standing it was a high dive contest they were standing at the bottom before they climb up to the top of the platform for their dive and as the as the athlete stood there the athlete had their eyes closed and were just doing all these little subtle movements and and having been an athlete myself Uh, And remembering how often we rehearse things in our minds, I thought it's a perfect image of mental rehearsal, creating an image of the future, the successful dive so that it has even both a conscious and even an unconscious impact over what you're doing when he actually is on the top this particular diver on the top of the platform and then then making the dive so self-fulfilling prof- prophecy or creating the dream or the vision is, is very powerful particularly if it's one that taps into your emotions or is actually important to you i mean organizations have visions and people read them and they don't really care whether they happen but if, but if your organization or you have a vision that you care about it and you look at it and you say, that would actually make a difference. That would be important if we accomplish that. Then you have this emotional attachment to it and you look down and you say, gosh, you know, I should do this instead of that if I'm actually going to accomplish that vision. Uh, and so changing the image of the future is, in my opinion, the most potent leverage point for change in an organization or in an enterprise, perhaps even in an individual's life. Um, and and of course, there, there are all these uh, various tools and, and so on for doing it. Yeah, if you lose um, all
0: hope, people commit suicide, right? You you, go, you end yeah. up being depressed and eventually you get to the point where you see no reason to continue. Because the image of the future to you is much worse off than your present, or at least as better as, as the yeah. present and it, you yeah. see no improvement. And that surely has a direct impact there. And the the athletes perfect example of visualization.
1: Well, it's it, you know you you remind me of the of the, the stories uh, told by I believe his name is Victor Frankel, uh, a um, you know survivor of the of the Holocaust and and the camps, um, and he used to and he was a, a, a pianist, a musician, and if I have the story uh, exactly right and. When he was in the camp, he said the thing that kept him alive in comparison to many of the people is that he constantly imagined himself playing a concert in a, in, a, in a magnificent concert hall. He created this image of the future that kept pulling him forward and pulling him forward. And he said, well, so many of my compatriots just lost all hope. They could not see themselves in any kind of hopeful or positive or even live, living way in the future. And when they lost that hope, their ability to survive declined. Uh, and that that was his story and and based on that uh you know uh, i remember reading a study of of uh, success in school um and what factors were correlated that is it your family income is it whether you had good childhood education and so on and of course all those factors have impacts on whether you're successful in school but one one of the factors that surprised the researchers in the particular piece of research that i read was the question was Does the child have a positive image of themselves in the future? Can they see themselves being successful? And thus, the researcher said, one of the most important questions you can ask a child is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if their answer is, I'll probably be dead. I'll be shot on the street. Versus, I want to be a firefighter, or I want to be president of the United States, or I want to be a concert pianist. Those people have a much a greater success record in school because they have something that kind of pulls them forward well that's all simple psychological stuff at the individual level what i've tried to do and, and those who in the futures field who have that really were teachers of me who worked with large organizations large systems state systems and so on um to try to take that that basic psychological concept and raise it to to the le- complex level of 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 societies or organizations, and say if you can create a positive image of yourself um, uh, in the future of your organization, in the future, in a way that you embrace, uh, then you'll uh, be more likely to move move toward it. Um, so that's you know that, that's been the philosophy that that has under underlaid most of my work.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Victor Frankl's Men's Search for Meaning*. Uh, As far as as I know, the story is he was a psychiatrist uh, who lost his family, and uh, the story behind him staying alive was actually him being able to observe humankind in a sort of a psychological experiment that was never been able to be observed before, and uh, his manuscript of the book was destroyed, and so his, his meaning to survive was so that he can rewrite that book with the updates from his uh, psychological observations. And of course, that was the, the, the foundation of what's later known as uh, logotherapy, which has a lot of stoic philosophy imports in it. Uh, also, a lot of uh, sort of the narrative and the storytelling, uh, in a way, somewhat Joseph Campbellian, if you will, uh, in some ways about the, important, the, the, the importance we attach uh, to, to stories that we attach to real events. Uh, and how the same event can have opposite interpretations based not on the actual event but on the story that we import on top of that event, which originates in us, not in the event itself. Uh, but let's go back to the distinction, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Do you want to add anything?
1: Well, no, no. Then, then, uh, perhaps then I heard the story about Frankel, and he was re- using an example of of, of what uh, what. Uh, uh, that kind of image image would be because you're if if you're probably weren't than familiar with his actual actual work. But the principle uh, still holds. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Uh, and and there were many musicians around him, and I would not be surprised if he was a musician in his spare time, too, just like Einstein was. Uh, so i I simply don't know that part of his biography. But let's talk about the distinction between the preferred, the possible, and the probable future.
1: Yes, you know, and that's a that's a very standard trope within within the futures field, and people have expanded that a little bit to include plausible futures out of scenario work and so on. But that's the way I was uh, really introduced to that was through uh, the the person who was my mentor futurist who had come out of the space program and then become a college president. Uh, and uh, he used to really talk about these three questions, what is probable, what's possible, and and what's preferred. And that really formed the original, framework for my own thinking about the future. It formed the original framework for all those future cone models that everybody uh, are relatively familiar with, where you have those those three cones out in the future. And the difference is very simple. Uh, the probable future is is the realm of forecasters, the the realm of uh, predictive models, uh, and so on. And you're really trying to ask, you know, what is likely to happen in the future? Uh, particularly what is most likely to happen in the future, or certainly what is has a better than 50% uh, chance of occurring. And there is value in trying to see that. There's a limit in trying to see it because the future is, in some senses, inherently unpredictable, uh, despite what we've said about these uh, the, the, the models uh, uh, the earlier in our conversation, but because there are always surprises. Um, but there is... You know, a, a whole school of uh, uh, in the futures field of, even though the futures field likes to say we don't make predictions, in fact, there's, there's a whole lot of effort go, that goes into to making forecasts and enabling people to see with some level of accuracy what is likely to be true, more likely to be true than not be true in 5 or 10 or 15 or 50 years. So that's the, that's the probable future. And I think it's worth exploring. I'll tell Alvin a story about that in a moment. The second is the possible future. And I think there are two aspects of that. Number one is what are the things that might happen in the future or they might not, but if they do, they'll make a really big difference. Um, for example, I remember working once with young school children and, uh, and we were brainstorming things that might be possible in the future. And, and one of the junior high age kids said, uh, humans will be able to breathe underwater and uh and i thought well that, of course that that's we we consider that to be impossible and it probably is impossible uh, but who knows who knows maybe, maybe there'll be some evolutionary uh change or some genetic engineering change that would make that that possible and if human beings could suddenly live and breathe underwater well it changes the game so that's that's a thing that's unlikely to happen but if it did it would make a very big difference that's one aspect of the possible future the kind of the, the impossible things that might become possible The other aspect is from an enterprise organizational perspective, if that's what you're doing is advising an organization is an organization can ask what is, what is impossible for us right now, but if we made it possible would change our business model or change some aspect of our organization and so on. So those two parts of the coin, my, my, my mentor, whose name was Dr. Ed Lindemann. um, He used to say everything that's possible today was at one time in the history of the universe, impossible. Uh, that's, you know, the evolution of species, the ability to see, the ability to build technology, uh, and so on. If you go back to the Big Bang, everything was impossible. Well, in some sense, it was possible because it happened. But he, So he would say it this way, everything that today is impossible may at some point in the future be possible and that changes everything. So that's that's the possibility um, question. And I think that's a really valuable one to explore because it really challenges your creativity and your imagination.
0: Yeah, and that reminds me very much to Arthur Clarke's, uh, uh, what is it, The Three Laws of
1: Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, but uh, let me ask you because, yeah, go ahead. We, well, then, then we'll talk about the preferred. But yes, uh, mentioning Arthur sure. C. Clarke, the, the 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 question of what is possible in the future is really, in some senses, the realm of science fiction writers. Yeah, you know, they they look at at probable trajectories of both technology and societal events, and then they say, well, what if the world developed in this way? What if this was possible or what if, you know, what if faster or near faster than light speed travel was possible? What might society look like? So they play with that question, in my opinion, better than anybody else.
0: But they also play with what uh, Greg Bear called the sugar-coated pill uh, in on my show, which is precisely the third option, which I almost didn't let you talk about, which is the preferred
1: the preferred future. The sugar, I haven't heard you now, I know Greg. I never heard him use the term the sugar-coated pill, so that, that's fascinating. Yes, the preferred the preferred question is is also an obvious question. All three of these are obvious questions about the future. But my approach has been that you ask the first two, what is probable and what is possible, so that you can answer more effectively the third question, what is preferred? What is my preferred future? If you sit down with a group of people If you sit down, let's let's say you sit down with a leadership team in an organization and you ask them, what's your vision of the future? They can probably tell you something. But if you say, before you answer that question, let's spend 24 hours, let's spend three, eight hour days exploring what is probable in the future and what is possible, what might be possible in the future. And now let's answer the question again, what is our preferred vision? They will find some differences. They will see some things that are different because they will their minds have been stretched. Ultimately, we're all trying to always answer the, what is what is my preferred future? What do, what do I want my life to be like tomorrow, next week, uh, next year, and so on, even if we're not very consciously doing that. Um, I think it's the most powerful question. My, um, one of my observations, again, I, I may not be quite fair on this, but I think the futures feel when I started in this, in the, around 1980, while I was still a college professor, um, everybody I knew that, uh, that I met kind of in the futures field, whether it was Dr. Ed Lindemann or Barbara Marx Hubbard or Robert Theobald or some, some of these old names, um, they were mostly interested in helping collections of people, however they were organized, define their preferred future, come up with create a better world, rather than as compared to helping them make better forecasts of the world or create multiple scenarios so that they understood, were able to adjust what was happening when it was happening. Those are all useful activities and useful skills to have. But their belief, which really was inculcated in me, was the most potent thing that you can do is help people define a preferred future. Uh, And then devise steps and strategies and so on that might aim them toward it. Um, and so that's that's what I've come out of. And so my bias has always been the first two questions are interesting and valuable and useful, probable possible. but the most powerful question and the one we should work ultimately to try to answer is what is our preferred future?
0: Yeah, and to be honest with you, that's kind of the the whole reason only I arrived, this conclusion from a very different way, Uh, that's to say by import of ethics, because preferred is all about ethics, whether personal or corporate or uh, civilization-wide, you know, national, you name it, collective, Uh, but it's always about ethics, and so I came into that kind of conclusion uh, from the ethical point of view. uh, and to, to be honest with you, one of the the trends that I see and that really dislike is that I think that's kind of being lost in the last, maybe I've been in the field for since, let's say, early 2000s, 2004, four five since I started academically first taking interest and then later on professionally. But I think now people are getting to be precisely in what you were describing as more narrowly and narrowly specialized. In other words, they're starting to look at the world and history with straws. So they're limiting their field of view, their aperture is shrinking, in other words. Uh, And and to me, uh, it's gotten to the point where it's all about predictions. Whereas from my point of view, if I were to paraphrase Karl Marx and bring him into the sort of a futurist context, I would say something to the degree of, futurists have always tried to predict the future, but the
1: point, however, is to change it. Well, that's, that's my bias, yes. Yes. Now, there, you know, I'll add a caveat to that, and you'll you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I did a project in, in 2000. I got invited by. There was a short-lived foundation in in the Seattle area called the Future Foundation, and it was funded by a bunch of money from a, an aerospace executive who had a, had a kind of a subcontracting aerospace company, but had been very successful. Uh, and he was a um, Swiss immigrant to the United States. Who had um, I don't know that it would be fair to say that he fled, uh, you know, during the war or before the war. I don't quite know the exact story, but but um, he was he was very interested in the future. He asked me he wanted what he wanted to do was to bring together uh, scientists, philosophers, high level scientists and philosophers, Nobel Prize winners, some of them to ask them, what will it take for humanity to survive for another thousand years? And so I sat with him um, and, I, and I got to facilitate those sessions and we did, we call it Humanity 3000. And um, I said, well, the ultimate question we should ask them is what, is what is their preferred future? And he went like this, no, absolutely not. Do not ask them that, he said, <laughs> because Adolf Hitler had a preferred future. He said, that's the most dangerous question in the world. Wow. Is what is your preferred future? Because he said, Adolf Hitler and every dictator in the history of the world has had a preferred future. They had a very clear preferred vision, and they would do anything that was possible to do in order to create that, make that vision come true.
0: So did Dalai Lama and Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther
1: King Jr., all of them had preferred futures. Preferred futures are are moral questions, as, as you pointed out, and they're debatable. Now, his he was a scientist engineer. His belief was that if we that if these scientists and philosophers explored hard enough and effectively enough, it would become very obvious that there would be an obvious scientific answer to what human beings should do to survive for another thousand years. Now, the conclusion that that group came to, and we did several multi-day retreats with large with with groups of them, was. Um, that it came down to choices that we were going to make and it came down to whether we would choose to deal with the uh, climate crisis uh, and whether or not we could overcome um, religious and other sources of conflict that lead to destructive behavior and so on. So it all, and ultimately their conclusion, their scientific conclusion, was that it all came down to whether or not human beings could make good moral choices.
0: And that, to me, as a philosopher, is kind of obvious. I mean, I'm happy that they got to that conclusion, but to me, what your uh, uh, funder there, the the, the Swiss yeah. aerospace yeah. engineer, was was exhibiting was a, what I call the scientism or a techno solutionist bias. Yes. Uh, which presumes that science can only take us forward and and to a better situation and and better outcome. And if we only just you know focus on STEM, it would all be okay. And that, that was- and one of the offshoots, the dangerous offshoots of that kind of thinking, is that you underfund the the the, the, the humanities, philosophy, art, uh, and and all of that, which are to me. The re- n- 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 uh, So science helps us be- live a let a better life, an easier life, more comfortable life. But it's the humanities and the arts that that make us give us a reason to live, that tell us why we should be living in the first place, that tell us what we should be striving for in life in the first place, right? So science is m- merely a tool. In, this, in the in the, the sort of the hands of the humanities and you can incorporate it to destructive end i mean nazi germany was very scientifically advanced very scientifically advanced yet yeah, the best scientists uh, in the 30s around the world basically were there berlin was the scientific center of the world mm-hmm. uh, and and albert einstein himself was very disappointed from his colleagues Turning overnight German nationalists and switching their work from science into like weapons of mass destruction, mustard gas and whatnot, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me that's obvious, but I'm happy that they got they got to that conclusion.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was really really interesting that that that's where they, that's where they ended up. There there wasn't a simple scientific solution to surviving uh, for another thousand years. It was it was all a matter of of again the future being choiceful. Something that that we have to envision and choose uh, over and over and over again.
0: And that makes me be optimistic that if we engage people like that, I mean, most of my audience is IT professionals and engineers, software engineers, especially, and stuff like that. Uh, So. Of course, there are people just like you and me uh, with their flaws, just like we have our flaws and with their uh, uh, advantages over us. Like, I'm not obviously as scientifically literate as them, never will be because I'm not expert in that field. Uh, but we can all make progress. I can be better educated scientifically, and they can be better educated in terms of ethics. And then I think. The, the the both the tool and the means in the end can come out to a better outcome, which has been sort of like the crux of my work for the last eleven years, trying to push this message, uh, against that tide of 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 sort of narrowization and and, and focus, tight focus of of the, the futurist community. <sighs>
1: Yeah, you're making me think of, uh, you know, we mentioned 1980 or so is when I really started this. I was just finishing a first stint as a college professor in the field of communication and uh, had come to the University of Washington here in Seattle, where I am now and been here ever since, um, and to work on a PhD in, in the field of communication. But my futurist mentor, the old space guy, said, well, when you get to the University of Washington go meet a guy named Ed Wank. And Ed Wank was the first science advisor to the Congress. Uh, but he worked for, but now he was a teacher in the School of Engineering at the University of Washington, where he was one of three professors in a, in a very incredible program that they had at that time. It was called the Social Management of Technology. And it was one kind of Marxist professor and Ed Wank, this, this former science advisor. And wow. their, their question was, uh, technology always has uh, unintended consequences How can we socially anticipate and socially manage those consequences in a more effective uh, way and and ahead of time and to the best of our ability and so on? So that actually became sort of my minor. I I still studied communications. I studied how computer networks would change human communication. Uh, But... uh, as part of that, I took courses in in the social management of technology, and it was it was very powerful. It's exactly what we're talking about about trying to get this the the, the mix of let's call it humanities and science engineering uh, right, so that people approach the world with with sort of a dual skill set instead of one or the other. One one of my concerns about the crisis in higher education right now, and that by that I mean the the financial crisis that that higher education. Uh, faces is um, in the world that we're in now, highly technological, uh, highly oriented around uh, work and jobs, and so on. That uh, that we will lose uh, as we we will lose humanity's philosophy and so on. This has been a constant concern for for those who are interested in higher education for a long time. Is that when the funding crisis hits, we ask, well, which 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 of our courses help people get jobs? Let's keep those. And which ones don't help people get jobs? Well, that's philosophy and humanities, so forget that. Uh, and and I'm afraid we might unbalance that in some some ways that, that we shouldn't. It would be much better if we actually um, let sort of just-in-time education and so on deal with a lot of the technological education, in my opinion, and, uh, and poured a little bit more effort into humanities, philosophy, and so on, given the 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 sort of technological versus humanity technology mixed with humanity who's in charge what's in charge what's going to happen all of those kinds of questions that are going to be so important in a Kurzweilian world in the next 20 years Right,
0: we're gonna come back to that. Uh, but before that, perhaps I wanna share a little story with you, cause it's like right on this topic. When I was mm-hmm. undergraduate at the University of Toronto, there was this debate, if I remember, between the Department of Philosophy and the Department of, uh, or, or one of the, maybe it was the Rotman School of Business even. Um, and the, the, the question was, who makes more money? Philosophers or business graduates? And it's a, it's a statistical, uh, empirical sure. question, hundred percent. You know, you look at the at the graduates for the last several decades. You aggregate the numbers and you see the result. And guess what? Philosophers, after graduation, start at much lower pay job. They earn thirty, in some cases, fifty percent less uh, right out of school uh, as compared to people right out, out of business school. However, look at them over the entirety of their career and especially towards the end of their career they're making often twice more in the long That's run really. than yeah. than 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 business school graduates and the best part was that the top level executives so if you want to if you want to be a mid level executive the the conclusion was uh, and make let's say 100 150000 dollars a year you should go take do an MBA or something like that if you want to be a high-end executive like a CEO or a high-end VP, make a lot more money than that and have a lot more impact. You should study philosophy.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I see, you know it, there is there's really no surprise in that, is there? I mean, it, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. And in fact, is in fact, if you if you listen to high-level executives at tech companies and so on, and you ask them, you know, who are the best people that you want to hire, they will all, you know, historically they'll say, well, I'd rather hire a liberal arts graduate and train them how to code and hire a coder who doesn't know anything about any anything else in the world. Now they don't necessarily always follow that advice that they, that they claim that they, uh, that they believe, but, uh, but th- that, that's not surprising. But I, I do think that the, the first way in higher education, the, the, the first uh, impulse when there's a financial crisis is to look for departments that are not necessarily seen as job training. That's, that's just, the, that's the way it works.
0: Yeah, and the caveat of my story is that I'm not sure if that will, if that argument holds in general or just in particular with the University of Toronto graduates specifically. Mm-hmm. That's that's where you oh, know, yeah. I, I can't I, yeah. claim it to be a general yeah. sort of fact. Uh, but 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 what you said there. Uh, also reminds me to many of the technological predicaments that we're facing today, which I would claim stem directly from nerdy uh, colders who ended up at very high places without the faintest clue about ethics and, and, and sort of humanities and, and history. And a good example of that is Mark Zuckerberg, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. for example, was utterly shocked when I watched uh, him in a conversation with Yuval Noah Harari I was utterly shocked about how narrow-minded, defensive, poorly educated about historical context trends and things like that Mark actually is. And now people say he was a brilliant culture and, and, and all around nerd and geek, and that may be true. but But actually I think, and we see the results have been very detrimental in so many ways because of that. Yeah. And you can say the same yeah. about Instagram founders maybe even Larry and, 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 uh, Sergey, even.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 don't know about them as much, but I think, but I think you're right. And what, you know, I've been around some, not, not a lot, but some, some, uh, very successful technology company leaders and, and it's probably true in other fields as well, but it certainly is true there that it's very easy for people who read, achieve that pinnacle of success, particularly if it comes fairly fast and fairly young, to convince themselves that they must be really smart about everything. Exactly. I'm not saying anything that, that people haven't said before, I haven't thought about before. Uh and so I've seen many of them significantly in my opinion, uh, of course, who am I to say, uh, overestimate uh, their their knowledge of or their deep understanding of a uh, field that they really know very little about, simply because they are very smart people, uh, but their but their their focus has been relatively narrow.
0: Yeah. And you know, after interviewing 260 people on the record for my podcast and having probably double or triple off the record conversations with with mm-hmm. those people and people like that my impression is that genius and stupidity are roommates under the same roof. And that's part of the human condition. But many of those people, because of the accolades and the, the the enormous authority and prestige that carry with them, simply take it from granted that, oh, I know about string field theory and therefore I can talk about sociology or
1: politics or ethics or you name it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and not only that, that I... I could take uh, take over that field and run it if I wanted to. It's, it's, it's one thing to talk about it. Right. We, we we all talk about things as in our in right. you know, to the best of our understanding. Right. But to believe that the skill set that they have qualifies them to go run this or do that. It you know, it comes out most often in 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 saying that the government or schools should be run like a business, in right. my opinion. Right. You know, right. When they're when they're vastly different kinds of enterprises. Um, right. So
0: Anyway, let me switch the conversation here because we digressed a little bit and ask you this. You've had a very long overview of the of the field of futurism. So let me see how I can put this in the best way possible. First, what are the big problems or issues that we humanity as a civilization from the big macro picture is facing today? And secondly, how does that compare to the same big issues and problems that you saw four years ago uh, in in the 1980s. In other words, have those changed? Have they evolved in any way?
1: What's different? What's similar? I would say the the number one issue that that we face right now is the issue of collective decision-making. And that's a little bit different than it was in, in the 1980s in that uh, we, we we knew that we had um, you know conflict in the world between different systems of government and so on, but there was there was even then there was more of an impetus toward, for example, uh, global cooperation or or approaching global problems, and doing the best we can a, 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 as a global community. Right now, here in in the year 2020, we have um, divided up. Uh, more so, and and I think there's a real impetus in the world back toward nationalism, uh, back toward um, being suspicious of people uh, who are who are not from your area, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's the number one problem. How, how can we make collective decisions uh, on, on a global scale and and avoid falling into to nationalistic and and xenophobic um, traps? And and there there's a there's you know, it's been revealed here in the United States and and I think in, in several other countries around the world in the last 10 years or so, but particularly in the last half dozen years and in the Trump years here, that there's a surprisingly large percentage of people who would be quite comfortable uh, li- living in a um, nationalistic, even fascist, uh, and, and quite xenophobic uh, kind of uh, governance system. Uh, and And that's not going to work for the other big problems that we have. Number one of which uh, is the whole climate uh, uh, climate challenge, which is a which is a global challenge. Now we were talking about that in 1980. We talked about it as environmental issues. You know, I was a college kid when when the first Earth Day uh, began, and so we've been concerned about and aware of concern about the environment for a very long time. But in 1980, when I gave when I was giving my very first talks as a futurist, I would talk about desertification and i would talk about uh, the old glala well, aquifer and uh, and loss of water and i would talk about air pollution and water pollution and so on but we didn't talk about global warming because it just wasn't on the radar there were some scientists who were paying attention to it but those of us in the general community were not and now when we talk about environment we mostly talk about climate change and i think that's clearly the, the, the biggest challenge that we have. And it takes a global approach to deal with it. It takes national commitment, it takes local commitment, but it also takes this global approach, which we are not yet capable of really engaging. Um, the After global warming, after, after sort of getting global governance or uh, in cooperation to an effective level, and then after climate change, I would say that the next issue is It's sort of economic, but it it is is the divide between um, uh, the wealth and and poverty, uh, the income divide, the wealth divide, and so on. Now, there are two sides of that coin. Number one, we have we have been lifting more and more people in the world out of poverty, and an increasing number percentage of the world population. Uh, is defined as as having a um, middle income or a middle class kind of lifestyle. All that's quite a low number uh, in terms of the amount of dollars that you have in many parts of the world. But we have been doing a somewhat effective job of that. But at the same time, we've been drifting toward—drift is not the right word. Maybe it's racing toward um, a smaller and smaller percentage of the global population. Uh, controlling, uh, owning and controlling a higher and higher percentage of, of global wealth. And in that sense, my my science fiction writer, uh, friend David Brin, uh, captures it best when, when he says that, um, you know, human societies through almost all of human history, that as we understand it, were organized in a pyramid, where a very few people at the top, we've called them royals, we called them kings, we called them queens. We call them autocrats. We call them all these different terms. They owned all the wealth. Yeah, they owned all the wealth and they controlled uh, the work of everybody else. Everybody, in a sense, worked for them. And you paid them taxes and so on. And he said, you know, the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the Democracy Revolution of the last couple of hundred years was an effort to overturn that pyramid. doesn't limit people necessarily from being wealthy, but it wasn't to have this pyramid with a few wealthy people controlling everything. And the last, you know, since 1970, 1980, especially, the world has been moving in that direction again. And Bryn will argue, I think he does, that, uh, that this is actually a very deliberate effort. It's not like an accidental thing that's happening. It's that people believe this is the way we should organize society. I should be in charge. I should own all the wealth. I'm the smartest person, et cetera. And that dealing with that is part and parcel of those first two things that I mentioned, particularly the first one, uh, global government. So those are those are the three biggest issues I think that that we face. Now you, you can you can get into management of technology and what do we do with AI, and um, you can you can talk about other. You can talk about uh, gender equity, which is a, a significant issue uh, both in terms of pay and in terms of position in organizations, those are all issues that that were there, at least the fledgling versions of them in the 1980s. But those first three that I mentioned, I think are the, are the big ones, uh, that to me are the answer to, um, whether we get through uh, the, the, I'm going to talk about space here. Um, I've, I've always been really interested in, in the Fermi paradox and, and why we aren't visited by other civilizations all the time. Um, Though I I did in my life once see a, see a UFO, so that's a whole other story. But um, wow, you're blowing my mind here right now. Yeah, yeah. So so why aren't we seeing all these people? And you know, and one of the theories is that the reason we don't see a lot of civilizations in this massive universe in which we live that have figured out how to overcome the physics of these great distances is that every civilization goes through a uh, great filter. That they achieve a level, uh, and right. you're, you're familiar with this, of course. They achieve a level of technological development uh, without achieving a commensurate level of political development, so that they that technology technology is more likely to destroy them than to enable them to move into the stars. And you've got to go through this filtering process where you have the technological capability, but you also have the philosophical and political capability to make it. And we're in, my opinion, one can argue. I think quite persuasively that the 21st century that we're in now is the century of our great filter. We're either going to solve the climate issue or deal with it effectively by the end of the century, or we're never going to expand into the universe. We're going to solve this global cooperation problem, or we're not going to expand into the universe. And we're going to solve this financial equity problem, or we're not going to expand the universe. If we solve all three of those things, then a whole... a whole I was going to say a whole world opens up, a whole universe opens up. Certainly, a whole solar system opens up. So we're we're in that we're in that the crux of that, and, and that's more clear now than it, than it was, of course, in 1980. Um, the, let me ask you here though, uh,
0: just just so to 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 kind of look at where futurists were back then and today, right? Uh, and by mm-hmm. the way, just one example is when you were talking about certain people who thought that you know. Uh, as a good example of the kind of person who would think that, oh, this is how it should be and you know, the pyramid structure is a good structure and we should just sustain that. Peter Thiel is a good example of that, right? He basically says that uh, personal liberty uh with respect to gathering infinite amounts of capital and and possessions and stuff like that is irreconcilable with democracy and so since we're forced to 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 choose between democracy and uh, uh you know sort of like infinite growth of capital he's on the side of capital and i'm severely paraphrasing him here, but that's kind of like the bottom line of his argument, and which is why he's not known for a big supporter of democracy. Uh, but let me bring that loop back to the futurists and the big themes of the 80s and the big theme of today, because you identified as today's biggest issue, the sort of rise of nationalism, polarization, whether ideological or economic, etc. So my question then is, did the futurists of the 1980s foresee that and anticipate that? And if they did, or they didn't, why and what are some examples of that? Because to my knowledge, take for example, uh, Donald Trump. In 2015, very few people, futurists or otherwise experts, would have even seen him as sort of the Republican candidate to begin with, let alone even winning the... The election, and of course, most people were betting multiple times against him over in favor of Hillary, even after he was the, the GOP candidate. So, it's fair to say that they missed it at that level. But, what about sort of the long view perspective and then that whole phenomenon that that unleashed where we are today? And you identify it as yeah, a big issue,
1: yeah. Yeah, there's there's you know that that's a very com- complex, uh web to untangle but let let me just pick out a couple of pieces that come to mind um one is i I think that the futurists um get it wrong got it wrong at that time to some degree because the drift in the world we'd, we'd come out you know you go back to uh 1940s un an effort at global cooperation nobody really thought the un was that effective but even in the 1980s, people were still pretty committed to it. There was a lot of, there was some ferment on the on the American right about why we should be out of it and so on. Um, the level of religious conflict, uh, particularly uh, conflict between Islam and 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 the rest of the world, was not as significantly was not as significant on the world stage as it became just a, a, a decade and a half later. Uh, and, in fact, you know, it was wasn't that long before that there was a whole ecumenical movement in the world, which was kind of the strongest movement in 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 global religion at the time, which was that we should all kind of come together and see things in a cooperative kind of way. And that all drifted away. but but I think that 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 I don't know if this is really fair to say, but that most futurists uh, at that time kind of believed that, that we would continue, as Fukuyama eventually said, toward this, this more utopian end of history kind of idea. Now, there were, there were undoubtedly some who were warning about uh, uh, prob, uh, potential problems uh, around nationalism. Um, there were some, certainly, you know, there was great concern around environmental issues uh, in, in the futures community in, in the 1980s.
0: I think that's um, I one remember, positive example of something yeah, we got
1: right, more or, yeah, or less. Yeah, so, something that, that we really did get right. But but I don't think that people anticipated that we would kind of revert to a more nationalistic, um, yeah, a, a more nationalistic world. In fact, you know, I remembering remembering now in the eighties and nineties, there was lots of conversation about the end of the nation state. Uh, that that we were on a trajectory where the nation state would would fade away, and it may we may maintain sort of the fiction of nations for reasons of national pride and to have world cup teams and and so on. But 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 as as a governing structure, that that was sort of. Would disappear into the background, and we would achieve some new level of organization. It might be a combination of of hyper organized local level and global level, but the nation state would fade away. That was a that was almost an article of faith among uh, uh, many people in the futures community. I would say and among and others in the political science community and elsewhere. Uh, totally, totally.
0: I even remember the so called McDonald's theory, uh, uh, the McDonald's, th- McDonald's theory yes, of peace, yes. where. You know, as you know, two countries that both had McDonald's at the same time never actually went to war with each other. And that kind of goes towards that end of history kind of ideological view that as long as you have the sort of commercial uh, or capitalist system in the background, it would create other sort of mechanisms or tools of conflict resolution. And, you know, uh, two countries that both had McDonald's at the same time never went to
1: war. That that was true until the Balkans War. It was the Balkans war that uh, uh, that blew that theory up, so to speak. Um, yeah, one of the, you know it's, it's fascinating some 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 historians, you know, in a few decades from now, maybe longer than that, will look back probably at the uh, 1990s, you know at the at the approach to the millennium. Um, the the Soviet Union had fallen. the balloon Wall had come down there really was a peace dividend. Um, The American economy was, was growing. There were democratic movements in former Eastern Europe. Uh, The American budget was, um, was, was such that it was the federal budget was going into surplus to the degree to which the chair of the federal reserve became concerned that we would pay off all of our debt. And he couldn't figure out how the, the economic system would work if, U.S. government didn't have any debt, um, and and that was the world as the millennium turned. And then it all blew up. And why, 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 why? Historians will ask, why did they not embrace that and keep moving in that direction?
0: Yeah, and that's my concern. You see, that's why I'm bringing this here because my concern is that we, as the experts, uh, a community of experts, you know, because the the, 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 the mm-hmm. futurist sort of community was organized sort of like, to my understanding, after World War II uh, in the context of uh, sort of the Cold War and especially nuclear weapons and so on. Uh, yes. To sort of in a game theoretical analysis and, and sort of foreseeing the different possible and plausible and preferable future scenarios in a sort of a game theoretical relationship with the Soviet Union and later on China and other nuclear nuclear armed powers. Now, now our community missed the collapse of the, the, the Soviet Union, let alone a peaceful collapse of the Soviet Union even more so. Right? So, so mm-hmm. then then we kind of missed this this kind of nationalism and polarization that you're talking about now, which is kind of a return to the 1920s and 19, 1930s in a way, right? Yes. Sort of pre-Weimar or Weimar Germany, even if you will. And, and we see that all over the world in Brazil, in the Philippines, Poland, Hungary, all over Europe, you know, in the East, in the West. It's, it's all over the place. It's hard to escape. Uh, so we missed that too. So, so when we say, and I agree with you, by the way, that that probably the twenty first century may be that great filter, whether humanity survives or doesn't survive. Uh, and it, yet, at the same time, I'm very conscious that many people as smart or smarter than us, surely smarter than me and wiser than me, have made that sort of prediction since the beginning of of the world, since the Romans and the Greeks, every generation thought that, you know, the world is going to the dogs, basically. So I'm very conscious of that, and especially given our history of missing the
1: major events
0: in the past, I'm kind of trying to second-guess my own self.
1: Let me me say two things about that. Uh, In 1982, I went to one of my very first uh, World Future Society, Conferences, and that was at the time the, the Organization for Global Futurists, amateur and professional. And interestingly enough that it was organized very much like it, it attempted to emulate the UN and the gatherings of the World Future Society were actually called general assemblies. So it was it was sort of modeled on, on that, that UN model but I, and that's that's a that's sort of an aside. Uh, I went to a session, uh in which alvin toffler was the keynote speaker and he said so the field of future studies has been around this was 1982 and i think it it really became a field in the late 1960s i mean there were juveniles uh uh, forget his name the the french futurist and there was the dutch futurist fred Polak and some others writing stuff yeah well before that that. but but as but but as a um as a sort of recognized feel that sort of began in the late 1960s. So he said, we've been around for whatever that was, 15 years, 20 years. And he said, and the question is, why have we had no impact? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and wow. he said, and he said, my answer is we've we focused on the wrong question. He said we have we have focused on what is probably going to happen in the future. Uh, and trying to help people see make better forecasts when he said we should be asking what are the things that might not happen in the future but if they do they're going to change everything and that's what we should be trying to to discover and identify and um that that if we and that's interesting your description of of missing for example the, the fall of the soviet union um if we had asked that you know people had been been asking well what what is something that might happen the Berlin wall might come down Then what? Um, then we, we might have we might have uh been more effective in in that way. What's also true that you mentioned in, in the 1980s, uh everybody was worried about nuclear proliferation and nuclear winter and nuclear war and so on. Uh and we hadn't really started the uh the drawdown of, of nuclear weapons and we didn't really have as as effective a treaties as we've had in recent years around nuclear weapons. So that was that was when people talked about global threats in the 1980s, nuclear uh, war was was still uh, considered very high, if not the highest thing on the list. and that's that's certainly different now. Is it? Is it really well, different it, now? It, well, it's it's not high on people's list of concerns. But it's, should it not be? But uh, in in a renationalizing world where there actually is a proliferation of nuclear weapons to more nations, secretly or not so secretly uh maybe we should return to that i hadn't really thought about that but yeah maybe we should uh, the, the features community should put that back on the list of the five top global threats you know that that we might otherwise uh, leave it off of
0: to me it's definitely like probably number three on the list or somewhere there uh Uh, Because, first, we have a growing uh, list of countries such as uh, North Korea and Iran joining the the previously seven. Uh, And then, so it's now more like nine, really. And then, uh, on on top of that, we have this kind of extreme polarization rhetoric of nationalism. We have a number of small-scale wars, most recently between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Nagorno-Karabakh area. Currently, as we now speak, which was yes. kind of funded mm-hmm. and organized by Turkey, which is a NATO member. Actually, some of the targeting systems on the drones that Turkey gave the uh, the Azerbaijanis were designed. The software was designed in Canada, mm. uh, which was a shock to many Canadians once we found out. Uh, but but here you go, uh, and of course that's because uh, Turkey is a NATO ally, um, and and so. Uh, c- combine that with the fact that you have Putin uh, in, in Russia, uh, and you have China more and more reasserting itself. You have kind of a president of the United States, which is very impulsive and doesn't really have a policy directive, but rather kind
1: of improvises, impromptu, what to do and how to do it. Yeah, we're in it. Yeah, and in terms of that, we're, we we might be in a very dangerous two-month period. vis uh, a and- be Iran in, in particular. Uh, no. There, 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 there is a scenario in which you can say one, one way to maintain power would be to start a uh, uh, a significant conflict and then say declare a national emergency.
0: Exactly, say, that's what Margaret know, Thatcher next did. Next year,
1: I need to stay. Yeah, I need to stay in power at least for another year. That Margaret kind of
0: Thatcher used that too, by the way. When she was very low in the polls, mm-hmm. uh, she basically used the crisis of the Maldives. And, and kind of declared all national mobilization really? and kind of a war yeah. and, and sort of shifted attention and then won the consequent election because of her successful conducting of that war uh, against yeah. Argentina in this case. But yep. but many people, and you know, Putin was very strong uh, strengthened uh, with the annexation of the Crimea, uh, right? So we see that over and over and yeah, over again. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, you're. I think you're right. I think. I think it. it should be uh, put back on the list and put put high on the list. And um, we'll see. Now there, there are these reports that Putin might retire in January uh, for health reasons. Right, uh, Parkinson's, we'll supposedly. And, we'll see. Yeah, Parkinsons, and and we'll see whether that's really true. One yeah. doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, we'll see whether the uh, the uh, transfer of power happens here and gets us perhaps into a slightly safer space. But all the other dynamics that that you mentioned are are still there, particularly the proliferation issue and um, and this this extreme nationalism. I do want to come back to the the great filter idea. I do want to say one one thing, uh, that countering what you said, which is uh, when I say we're the 21st century might be the century of the great filter, I have no doubt that human beings will survive the 21st century and be around for centuries after that. Uh, the question is what in what state, uh, and when I say the great filter, I'm really referring only to our ability to become a a multiplanetary civilization. Right. That, that if we if we don't get through this century in in an effective way, it severely limits our ability to to become multiplanetary. I'm not saying I'm not one who believes that. Uh, as as they might have during the Roman times or all these other times where, you know, we're nearly at the end of the world and, and humans are going to be wiped out. I, I don't believe that. I I think it's more likely than not that human beings will be around a million years from now. Uh, that, but exactly in what state and uh, exactly in what level of technological development, that, that's open to question.
0: Well, this is a perfect sort of segue from talking from about the past to talking about the future and how it could, sort of change our present, perhaps. So let's kind of take the tools that you were sharing with us in the beginning and mm-hmm. see if we can sort of utilize them to first create a, a vision of the future and second, see how it could influence our present. So so walk us through this. What in your view, now Now I'm just going to sort of ask you to sort of lecture us or, or, or sh- show mm-hmm. us how it's done. So so what is the probable and possible future from where we are today you know 2 months before a, a power change presidential election in the United States in environmental uh, challenges climate change challenges nationalism uh, social media issues uh, you know global yeah. pandemic let us not forget so it's a it's a very kind of complex and complicated situation so what are the projecting forward and then backwards the possible future. Let, yeah, yeah, uh, let
1: me let me you know pick three or four of those areas domains let's call sure. them and, and apply those questions to them sure. uh pro- probable future is the probable future is that that we have a satisfactory transfer of power in, in the united states uh that that's probable uh still it's possible that we don't but but it's it's probable that we do and that that, that puts us on a better trajectory uh vis-a-vis the uh, pandemic because it it enables the United States to re-enter cooperation with the rest of the world and confronting the pandemic as well as uh, coming up with a more effective pandemic response in the United States, which is vital uh, for the rest of the world. And that's the best thing that can come out of out of this transfer of power is sort of putting us back in in uh, in cooperating with the World Health Organization and developing a global strategy to take care of this particular pandemic and be better prepared for future uh, potential pandemics. Um, So that's probable. Uh, It's probable that we will not effectively uh, uh, deal with uh, climate change in a way that keeps temperatures uh, to non-emergency levels. So we won't keep it to one and a half degrees. We won't keep it to two degrees. Uh, Perhaps we can keep it you know, below too much above that. But given the trajectories that we're on in terms of of emissions, given the trajectories that we're on in terms of global commitments and cooperation, even with the U.S. coming back into the Paris Accords, which is not necessarily a, um, it's more of a a list of targets for people to try to reach. It's aspirational. It's aspirational. Um, You know, it's it's likely that, that climate change is going to become a severe problem uh in this century and i I don't know that it's fatal i don't think it's fatal uh and and i think that over the next you know it's probable that over the next 20 years the world will step perhaps even over the next 10 years the world will step up and take much more aggressive actions to deal with it but we're late you know we're already we're already very late on that um, and it's, it's probable that the income gap, the wealth gap uh, will continue to get worse and that nationalism will continue to get worse in, in the near term future. And by that, I mean, uh, in the, in the decade of the 2020s, but it's possible. Now let's go to the possible question on those. This is, it, it's, it's possible that, uh, um, this particular government transition wakes people up enough. It's, it's it's kind of an outside possibility, but uh, wakes people off uh, up enough in the U.S. and has a ripple effect on the world that we say, you know, we we really do need to step back and and look at these at these significant problems: global warming and pandemics, and and if we want to add in nuclear prolifer- proliferation uh, and um, and and income inequality and and do something more aggressive about them, that's a possibility. Uh, and there are many, many pathways that would take you to effective actions on that. So, um, what would be good in in this in the next few years would be to have some descriptions made. I'd like to see you uh, know, post-apocalyptic films are always popular, but and I don't know that you can make a popular television series or a popular film out of something that's that's uh, post-utopian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would be interesting to try to say what what if what if the what would the world look like if we tackled these kinds of issues in an effective uh, in a particular a, a global systemic way. So those that's that's the possible side. What what we really you know uh, need at this time is, is a is a global vision. I I tell the story some. It's actually the the lead tweet on my, you know, my, whatever they call that tweet that you have at the top of your Twitter feed. And I have, I wrote about this at futurist.com in the last year, uh, 1984, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, one of the, one of the great futurists, uh, in my opinion, and very much a visionary futurist. She was all about global vision, global evolution and the fact that it was not uh, not only desirable but, in her opinion, kind of inevitable that we would eventually spiral up to a higher level of consciousness and a higher level of development. Uh, well, anyway, in 1984, uh, she—long story about it—but she she ran for vice president on the Democratic ticket. That is to say, she ran in the primaries, running for vice president, which is not something that you do in the primaries. But it turned out that it was legally possible to do that, and she. Uh, I got involved in that campaign uh, and, and uh, was the, the chair of, of here in the state of Washington for a while. And, uh, and so helped work on that campaign. And eventually she got nominated at the Democratic Convention in 1984. And, but the platform she ran on was to turn the office of the vice president in the United States into an office for the future, to create an office for the future. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson, who you've probably interviewed as well. You know, his his most recent book is... Oh, you haven't. Oh, you've got to get him. I, I might be able to help you with that. But um, yeah, seriously, I probably can. Um, but he, you know, his most recent book is Ministry for the Future, which is a new UN-type sub-agency designed to help uh, 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 helps humanity prepare, you know, better prepare for the future. Well, Barbara's platform was to create an office for the future within and run by the Office of the Vice President. And it's it's just it's a fantastic vision. It should be done. And her her concept was the president is in charge of the war room. When something bad happens in the world, the president and his people or her people, they go into the war room, and they have all the information flowing in from all over the world from the intelligence agencies and elsewhere, and they decide how to deal with this conflict or this warlike problem. And she said there should be a commensurate office called the the office for the future, the peace you know, and the peace room that the vice president in charge and that room would have intelligence that is collecting all of the breakthroughs that are happening all around the world. The technology breakthroughs, the social breakthroughs, the breakthroughs in how you deal with homeless people, whatever it might be. And that office is constantly collecting all that information and the vice president is in charge of collating all that information and developing new solutions to world problems. It's very, 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 um, Utopian kind of thinking, uh, one might think it's a little bit anachronistic to, to, to think in that way. But that's that's really what uh, what what would be a good thing. So that's the preferred future. We ought to have a way, a more effective way of creating images of or visions for. Uh, the preferred future, whether it's around climate or whether it's around weapons or whether it's around how you deal with in- income inequality. Here in the States, that would mean, for example, how you actually do uh, solve the problem of, of homelessness, which is a gigantic problem in, in this country right now. So my vision would be partly to create that kind of an effort and then through that effort to create actual visions. and then And then having identified, for example, um, how how you would deal with uh, income inequality and homelessness? You start start implementing solutions. That makes sense. Does that put it together in the way that you were asking?
0: Totally, totally. And I even watched right before we sat down to do our interview Barbara's original speech oh, at you that did. Yeah. Democratic yeah. convention, which is brilliant. And I even tweeted all about it and shared it all over the yeah, place. Yeah, it's really great. It's it. only
1: ten. It's only for for those who hear this. It's only ten minutes long, maybe twelve minutes long but it's it's really worth listening to 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 get a sense of what an inspiring vision could sound like which because we don't hear them very often
0: okay glenn so i want to bring in technology here so i want to bring in the possible probable and preferred uh, future uh with respect to technology in general and perhaps things such as artificial intelligence in particular but before that let me just touch on one point of the possible future because we here in Canada are to be honest quite concerned looking down at what's going on with you guys uh, what's the chance you think that the possible future would involve some kind of a civil war in
1: the United States it is it is absolutely uh, a a possible future Uh, and the, the reason is that the polarization has gotten very extreme as to nobody's surprise, who follows the news, um, and and uh, the U.S. in contrast to uh, most countries uh, is so heavily armed. Uh, the citizenry have you know there's just so many arms that it would be really possible for a um, uh, a demonstration to turn into a battle, to turn into to spill over into a neighboring city, to spill over into a neighboring state and so on uh, you know i still you know you still want to think that's a fairly far-fetched scenario i hope so uh but uh there but i, I don't i don't discount it one one can see in the level of vitriol uh that uh, that exists now how it happens you get a sense for how even people in the same families can can have such a high level of different uh, of conflicting opinion about the world is and how the world should be and as we all know anybody who's been paying attention this is all extremely exacerbated by social media and what social media uh became you know like, like most people i was i was quite the fan of social media uh believed that it you know that it had been a very positive force at the beginning of the uh arab spring and so on um but it wasn't the, the, the failure of that, and the ability to then to re-manipulate social me- media to bring those those movements to an end, and now the extremity to which social media bubbles us off enables us, us to to bubble ourselves off, and to create these um, these incredible echo chambers. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to unwind that. I really don't. I, I it's, it, it's 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 we're not gonna get to that level of vision, let's say of a a global cooperation around climate change or whatever it might be, if we don't get a handle on that, and I don't have any idea how that's gonna happen. I think compassion, uh, the
0: only thing I can think of personally is the Dalai Lama way, compassion, and and compassion to a different, differing point of view, uh, and recognizing their humanity. Uh, And and that brings me to to that uh, sort of point where, We are experiencing exactly what you're talking about within the same family first. Uh, And and so let me share with you a few stories here on this. So first, uh, uh, my wife's family on her mother's side is all from Rochester, New York. And the vast majority of her relatives voted for Donald Trump once and voted for him second time, um, including her mom. Um, Needless to say, that didn't help uh, very much during the Canadian Thanksgiving, which we have about a month before yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then, uh, so so we have that in the family, straight in the family. Secondly, then you have people like, for example, I had another friend who's been on the podcast, and she was telling me she had the same uh, sort of polarization in her own family, and he was she was telling her parents, "You guys are Jews." You, which part of the the sort of non uh the, the wrong race do you not get? Do you not get? You're the next ones, uh, and, and yet she couldn't even convince them of that. You know. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. Uh, and then finally, I got an email just like three days ago or something by someone uh, who says they they've been listening to my podcast for a long time, but they would not continue to do so because of my very strong uh, liberal bias and because of the fact that uh, there's been this phenomenon where that person was worried about their job because of their political support for Donald Trump and how the McCarthyism period now was being reversed uh, and this time the Democrats were going to be the oppressors and he, people like him were scared for losing their job, and and that's why he was forced to mm-hmm. use a fake email address and all of that. And how I was part of the oppressors, uh, because of my liberal bias. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, I and, like you know, what you're saying. And and so I and and so I I I was even thinking maybe I'll stop down and and sort of like make a brief. Episode podcast episode on this because it's an important issue and it's an issue which would impact on our future probably if we don't bridge that polarization and it's an issue of ethics uh, and it's a, but but to me the only way I can think of confronting that issue is compassion and yeah. and yeah. and avoiding righteousness avoiding superiority whether of intellectual or moral kind and and being. Perfectly sort of like present and open and compassion and, and then throw in because throw in the, the recipe that we're living in right now is ideal for, for actual civil war, I think. You have a contested election uh, or at least close election which has been contested by at least one of the sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a very you know large number of people, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. Uh, they like him or many of them may not recognize the, the outcome of the uh election. Uh, and you have a global pandemic, you have unemployment, you have all kinds of issues that can
1: exasperate that
0: yeah, um, yeah. so I just wanted to share that kind of with you
1: yeah, I think yeah I mean we have we have that in, in my own family too man I don't have, I don't have living parents but uh among siblings uh we have one, one sibling who, who is very much uh, a trumper and, and and what we've what we've done and um and i think all sides of the political spectrum fall into this and this is why your antidote is so important the, the dalai lama compassion antidote would be so important and i'm listening very carefully to what you say um because we we, we are in this era in which and and um joe biden said this in his Acceptance or his victory speech, such as it's been. Uh, he said, we, "We've got to, we've got to return." And was his language to a world where we view each other as. And I can't remember exactly how he said not it. Not blue it
0: states a, and red states, but the United not States.
1: Bl- n- not blue states, red states, but also not, not as uh, that we view each other as ideological uh, opponents or policy. But opponents, not enemies. But not as enemies. Yeah. And that's the key phrase to view each other not as enemies. And that applies globally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean if we're going to if we're going to get through the great filter which is uh, you know just it's a hard nut for human species to crack. We've got to you know um have a vision of of not viewing each other as enemies even if we are quite different uh, ideologically and in terms of our policy opinions on what should or shouldn't shouldn't happen. Um, but that's you know that that's that's very hard to do. And I you, you li- the ingredients you listed off as precursors or um, perhaps necessary but not sufficient for a civil war, uh, I, I would tend to agree with. I hope so. Because I hope We, we not have sufficient. Yeah, yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And speaking of enemies, by the way, a funny story from my undergraduate degree. Totally irrelevant. Irre- well, but at least funny, I think, and interesting because it kind of illuminates people's psychology. You know, I was first year undergraduate student in political science, and my interest was always in uh, uh, just war theory and stuff like that. And I was attending this conference where there was a retired uh, general from uh, from the US Marine Corps, I think, if I remember, talking about the Cold War. And he was talking about the first days when he was, I think, maybe a lieutenant or something like this. And he referred in a particular meeting Uh, uh, in a presence where there were very many four-star generals from the Navy with him and he referred to the Soviet Union as the enemy. And and one of the four-star generals corrected him by saying, the Soviet Union is the opponent, my friend, the enemy is the US Air Force. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, that's good that, so, that's really good so,
0: so that goes on to show yeah. you sort of human nature and how you know the Russians yeah. they're all over there you know they're the opponent but actually the daily fights that we fight with usually for money yeah. and influence and power yeah. and prestige are right here on our short yeah. and it's you know yeah. are is the navy gonna get this and we're gonna build the next generation of aircraft carrier is the The US Air Force is going to get these missiles or these new stealth bombers or what have you. So anyway, that that kind of hopefully lightens up the mood and and enlightens us a little bit about the human psychology. But let's go back to topic here and talk about the technology here. Let's talk about how artificial intelligence will fit into that big complex picture. What would it change? What's the possible? What's the probable? And what's the preferable future of artificial intelligence here? And what's the timeline to those? If you can, can share with well, us? Do yeah, you go yes. along the the Kurzweilian timeline or not?
1: Yeah, you, well, I, I, no, I, I don't. Uh, I, I think he's I think he's too aggressive. I understand understand the the mathematical calculation in terms of comparison to to the brains and those may not be, but uh, whether that translates into Human-like or beyond human-like intelligence, I, I think, is still an open question, uh, and, and I, I, we won't know the answer. I suppose until we get there. I, I tend to. I also read some from uh, Rodney Brooks. I don't know if you've had Rodney on the, on the show, and he's he's a bit more skeptical on on how quickly we see uh, general artificial I- intelligence. Um, the probable is that that the capacity of computing uh, and uh, the, the capacity of computing continues to to develop a, on the curves that it tends to be on. That uh, that includes quantum computing, and that enables us uh, to develop um, something that we label our artificial intelligence at, at the rates somewhat like um, Kurzweil is talking about. Um, the 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 possibility is there. There, you know, obviously two possibilities. One. Um, the machines become extremely uh, effective uh, at their specialized tasks, but never really make that breakthrough into a generalized uh, intelligence that that mimics or even uh, could be described as conscious. I think that that's one possibility, but the other possibility is that they do. uh, And that they become um, equal to, then uh, rivals of, and then superior to our own intelligence.
0: And what's the timeline and, to that you foresee, and, perhaps? Uh, well,
1: I know I, I don't my own opinion is that we don't see that in this century. Oh. I don't, yeah uh, but then i am I'm not um, immersed in what's happening with current artificial intelligence, nor what's what's happening with uh, other than at a, at a pretty cursory level mm-hmm. uh, with with quantum computing. So well, um, let's put
0: that into the possible
1: future day. Let's say that yeah, it's possible so, so I think, that we are... so I think it's possible that that, that it comes sooner, and, and and I think it's probable that it comes later. Mm-hmm. But but in any case, it comes. In, oh. in any case, it it eventually arrives. Though again, I I think whether it really achieves the level of consciousness that Kurzweil originally wrote about when when machines become conscious, you know, I. I that will all depend on the definition of consciousness i suppose but 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 i i think that that's I, that could be harder than, than we know because there, there just may be more there may be more uh for lack of a better word magic uh in, inside our our neurons and the system uh that it supports than, than we're able to ever figure out um, so, but, but it's, it's possible. And so then, then the question becomes, I think what, so, so what is preferred? And, um, uh, my friend Gerd Leonard in, in Europe is the one who's writing about this technology versus humanity, for example. Uh, and, um, the, the preferable future is one clearly where, the, uh, artificially intelligence, uh, intelligent machines of various forms and shapes and purposes, uh, exist to supplement uh, human intelligence and to offload things that we no longer need or, or, or want to do. Uh, but that has to be done in such a way in a preferred future that there's a reinvention and a rethinking at a very deep level of w- what is the purpose of being human? Um, what 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 might we do if we don't need to do drudgery task number A or B? Um, really what is our fundamental purpose is it is it creating art is it uh, um, you know helping people at at an emotional level that uh, even artificially intelligent machines can't do what really is the the fundamental purpose of being human and maybe the fundamental purpose of being human is to spread into the solar system aided by these artificial intelligent uh, artificial intelligence that will enable us to uh, to do that safely and and, uh, and, and at proper speeds and so on that actually make it all feasible maybe our purpose is to populate the solar system and then to to populate the near reaches uh, of the universe maybe we discover that's our purpose uh, and not not machines but actual us pieces of meat that go go do that um to to me, that's you know I'm I'm attracted. I'm, I grew up in the as a kid in the in the initial space era, so I, I get I do get attracted to that kind of future, the, the world even though it's full of conflict. The, the world of um, the expanse and and that kind of thing where we've developed machines that enable human beings to move quickly about uh, and enable us to to expand further into the universe. Um, to me, that that that's a really intriguing and, and attractive future. It doesn't happen without an artificially intelligent machine. You got to have really smart machines that can do all kinds of things for you. So, hopefully, those things can can happen together. I don't. Where I, does where
0: does technological unemployment fit within this picture? Because mm. technological unemployment is, in a way, within the relationship between humans yeah. and machines.
1: Yeah, I I I think of it in two ways. Number one, I think there's there's un there's probably countless untold things that human beings could be doing that we are unable to do because we're too busy making livings. So a technological unemployment would enable us to discover what those things are. And maybe it's just going on more wilderness hikes. I don't know <laughs> uh, what what it is, you know, I'd I, I like, I like to go on wilderness hikes and maybe I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So me and my wife, me, we me, we
0: meet the sunrise every morning at five o'clock. We wake oh up no gosh. matter the weather, no matter minus forty, rail, hail, hail, wow. rainstorm, for you. snow. Every morning we're out and we're meeting the
1: sunrise. Wow, wow, that's fantastic! Congratulations on on that. My, my <laughs> in our family, my wife is up meeting the sunrise in the living room where we have an eastern view of the sunrise, such as it is in seattle occasionally glorious and often gloomy uh, yeah where, where i i tend to be more of a, a night person and a little less of a morning person but that's an admiral thing admirable thing that you're doing um uh, back to back to technology my my you know i i would love to have artificially intelligent robots uh, of science fiction realm uh, assuming that they're controllable i i don't I tend not to I don't get caught up in as, as some of the leading technologists do, worrying that that there'll be a robot rebellion and, and a replacement of, of us. I, I I think that they could be I assume, I guess my positive side assumes that they could be designed in such a way and will be designed in such a way that they, they never achieve the um um you know the Schwarzenegger level of of uh of uh, what was the, what was his his, his films uh, Terminator, yeah, to the Terminator, films, Rise where, of the Machines, the Rise of the Machines, where where they term terminate us. I just have to assume that there's a way to unplug or develop them in such a way that that doesn't happen. So um, you don't agree uh, with Elon that they're an existential threat. I I tend not to know. I, I I one discounts. Uh, th- this is not always the most popular review, but my opinion is, one, one discounts an Elon Musk opinion at your peril. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has tended to uh, be right about many things, not everything. Apparently not about the pandemic, as far as we can tell. Um, not on, about self-driving on, on, cars either, by the way. But not about self-driving cars, but I'm still, I still see them in, if, if you go back to the We've only really been at this for eight or 10 years. That's not a very long time to be working on self-driving cars. It's an incredibly complex problem. Dri- driving down freeways, easy. Driving complex road systems in Canada or the U.S. that weren't built for autonomous cars, very, very hard problem. And, and we may never quite get there. But uh, but given that we're so early in that process and the capacity of the machines both uh, to see and to think, is still relatively rudimentary compared, all oh, Ray Kurzweil, to where it will be in twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty. I still think we might get there. Uh, the uh, the uh, the idea of uh, artificial intelligence or other uh, technology leading to technological unemployment. Um, one of my mentors was Robert Theobald, uh, and nobody even knows his name anymore. But he was an early nineteen f- seventies futurist. Uh, Wrote many, many things, but there's a wonderful little um, audio recording of him, which you can find on the Internet, of him explaining why we needed to have a guaranteed annual income in about 1971. Wow. Because he said there's a technological revolution underway, and there's going to come a day when the the machines will do most of the work, and human beings need to survive, and so we need to uh, invent and begin to implement a uh, a guaranteed annual income for everybody and 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 i was there <laughs> uh you know as i was a college uh, college senior i suppose about when he was saying that and so i've never forgotten that um uh, and 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 he stuck I, I was around him a lot did some major projects with him in the 70s and 80s and uh that was one of his his his, his ultimate themes is that's where we needed to head in order to provide a just and uh Uh, livable society so i i I don't know that's inevitable because we're we're not necessarily smart about these things but but um it certainly is a possible future and it ought to be a preferred future that we figure out how to provide uh, a guaranteed annual income i can also remember a um, a a nova special or something that alvin toffler did in in the early days of the of the um, industrial robot revolution and he was in japan and he was in um uh, a guy who had had purchased a uh, a painting robot, and the robot could paint all kinds of things, and and he said, and his example was the, the 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 Japanese owner of this robot was on the golf course playing golf all the time, while his robot was painting things, and he said that this this is this is the future. The robots will do the work, we will play, and we have to just provide figure out how to provide an income to the people uh, that uh, that don't own the robots as well, um, so. Uh, I, I think that I think that's a preferred future. Uh, I do hope we figure that out. And there are some interesting experiments. I understand it. I'm not intimately familiar with them going on around the world, even right now, around uh, guaranteed annual income. Well, the
0: the pandemic sort of released a number of those all over the world. So in Canada, we have this thing called CRB, which I'm not sure if if it's not covid rescue benefit or something or covid recovery benefit yeah. something like that which is $2000 per month uh, and i think uh, 7 to 8 million canadians which out of a population out of you know 35 6 million people is probably you know 18% something like that mm-hmm. i don't know 20% of canadians roughly are getting that uh, they there have been getting it since probably uh april may maybe may i think and they will be getting it until next summer
1: yeah so you know that, that's so a, that's, that's a kind of like uh,
0: guaranteed minimum
1: income right there yes yeah, it's, it's, it's action research in action basically uh you know there were proposals for that in the states this being the states of course we didn't do that but uh <laughs> we should have you know you know we'd, we'd be that's one of the reasons that covet is out of control here because people have to work uh, and and you know it was a huge huge policy mistake, um, uh, and so uh, kudos to to you in Canada for doing that. And it, it'll be interesting to to look back sociologically uh, at, as this experiment comes to an end. And ask, so, did it ruin everybody's lives? Did they all did they all become hobos? <laughs> uh, you know, you know all the arguments against guaranteed annual income. Um, we'll 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 know more we'll know more about that here in a year or two.
0: Yeah, and by next summer, you would say, look at those Canadians. We don't want
1: to end up like them, do
0: we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I, but I doubt it. I, you know, um, it's it's like the the programs provide housing for homeless people. They find that if you provide, provide them with housing rather than not providing it, everything gets better.
0: So, Uh okay. So let me ask you this then, and that's kind of the last sort of topic here with respect, and and then we'll bring our conversation to the end. But what about the pandemic? Because we talked about sort of the sociological and political situation. We talked about the technological situation. We even mentioned the possibility of civil war. What about the pandemic? You're a futurist, that's a pressing crisis. Uh, what is what is
1: the the possible, probable, and preferred future with respect to that? Oh, that's well. That, that's pretty simple. But let, let's back up one one step. How do, how did do we miss it?
0: I was going to say that, <laughs> but I I thought I take it easy yeah. on you this time.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I I was asked many times, and I think you saw and you you found a video of me saying I. It's one, one of the most common questions I was asked in the late nineteen nineties you know, through this century was what are the possibilities that there will be a global pandemic, a virus, or something of some kind that would wipe out human civilization? And my answer always was not possible. Uh, and the reason I would say that is that uh, the scientific community and the communications between with, among the scientific community in the age of the internet had reached a stage at which uh, when a, a new... Um, Pandemic level threat arose. It would be attacked so vigorously, and in such a coordinated global way that it would be almost impossible—not ever impossible, but almost impossible—to get out of control. And we, and of course we, we then we had some examples of that. We had, we had the early, the SARS, and and, and we had um, uh, what was the one that originated in Africa that just came back. Um, Ebola. We've had, yeah, Ebola. Um, We've had Ebola, and and those were highly threatening uh, diseases, uh, but controlled uh, pretty quickly and uh, quite well because of this very high level of, of scientific cooperation and government cooperation around the world in tackling them. And so, what I say about the uh, this current coronavirus uh, pandemic is, it was the most predicted. Uh, event perhaps in human history uh, because you know from from Bill Gates to graduate students in future studies programs to, to I watch videos from the early
0: 2000s experts yeah. in the
1: field were predicting yeah saying saying this is coming yeah it's going to happen we have to be ready for it there were as we all know there were there were plans written uh, there's the famous book that the Obama administration handed over to the Trump administration which was then thrown in the trash. Um, This is what you do if there's a a threat threat of a pandemic. Uh, And so it was the most predicted, but in some ways still the least prepared for. Uh, And the predictions got one thing wrong, and therefore we weren't prepared for it. And that is nobody imagined that um, governments, and in particular the U.S. government, would ignore it. And not only ignore it, try to cover it up. And so that's the problem with the pandemic. Now, in retrospect, we should have anticipated this because after the pand- this pandemic started, I went back, I saw a reference to this from Elise Bolding, and so I went and got the book uh, by Daniel Defoe. It's called Journal of a of My Plague Year, and you might have, you might be familiar with it. Uh, and he wrote it. He was a child uh, during the the plague year of 1664-65, uh, I believe it was, in London. And he wrote this book then later as an adult, kind of remembering what it was as though he was an adult at the time. And what immediately hit me in reading the first 50 pages of that book were the first impulse of the government in London was to deny it and to cover it up. To say, no, the plague isn't back. It's not really happening. Um, And so all the scenario planners should have built into the scenarios that the first impulse of even a government like the United States, would be to deny to cover it up, and to ignore it. But we didn't. So now here we are. So the, the probable future is, um, assuming the transition happens here, the uh, U- U.S. rejoins the World Health Organization, assuming the science that we're hearing about is correct, that, uh, that we will have one or more uh, successful vaccines, and they're already being pre-produced, thanks to the Bill Gates Foundation and, and some others, uh, that vaccination will begin next year. And that by two years from now, this this will be rearview mirror. Though it may still always be a, a a threat, it might still always exist in some corners of the world, and be a threat to you if you're not vaccinated and not otherwise immune. Um, so that's that's the but that, that is the probable future, and that's really really good news. The other part of the probable future, according to Larry Brilliant, the epidemiologist who led the final eradication of of smallpox is that given the size of the human population and are intermixing now with uh, other species uh, in their habitats at a much greater level than ever existed before in history, we are likely to see additional pandemics over the next two or three decades. or uh, are at least attempted breakouts of, of pandemics. So that's probable as well. The, the, the possible future is it'll get out of control again. We'll, we'll forget the lesson as soon as we've learned it that's a possible future, uh, but the preferred future is that we uh, remember the lesson that we learned on this time about what happens if you don't respond quickly and openly and transparently. This also is a bit of a criticism of China. We don't know precisely everything that happened in China because China is China, uh, but um, we, uh, it appears that th- their first impulse as well was to uh, deny and cover up for at least a short period of time. And so we have to sort of build that into our our scenarios, but have a preferred future in which governments don't do that. And we have a much more robust government and uh, and global uh, World Health Organization, other global organization responses to any future pandemic threat uh, that that emerges. And so we don't go through this again. Sadly, one more thought is that another probable future is that will be true for a generation or maybe a generation and a half, and then everybody will forget. Particularly, you know, if we're successful each time and tapping them down, then every, everybody will forget that it was really bad. And uh, our great grandchildren uh, will face a pandemic and they'll say, wait a minute, where did this come from? How come we weren't prepared for this? Because they, uh, uh, generations, over generations, we, we forget the lessons of history, no matter how effectively those histories are written. So that's my thought on the pandemic. Hope that covers it.
0: Yeah. And, and speaking of, uh, you know, how we missed it, uh, you know, it reminds me again to Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Three Laws of Prediction, where he says the first one is that when a distinguished but the elderly scientist states that something is possible, he's almost certainly right. But when he states that something is impossible, he's also almost certainly wrong. Uh, and so that, that, that kind of reminded yeah, me when yeah. I was looking at that clip of you in 2015. Yeah, yeah,
1: that, yeah that's, that's really good. Yeah, I remember the, the, the Ed Lindemann, my original mentors, the way he actually said, I talked about this a little bit before, but I wasn't remembering his exact statement. He, he, what he would say would be, everything that's possible today was at one time impossible. Yeah. And therefore, that inevitably means that everything that's considered impossible today may at some time in the future be possible. Now, when he was saying that, that he, to him that meant including traveling to another solar system, uh, but uh, but it means you know it can be applied to all kinds of uh, domains,
0: right? And and going to the pandemic and the possible and the probable, uh, I was w- w- reading actually a couple of days ago about a, a mink outbreak of coronavirus in Denmark, and I saw that. if the reports were accurate, uh, it was a. Uh, um, a mutation of the virus which was not susceptible to the at least most of the corona vaccines being developed right now so if it were to jump back into humans that could have some serious implications with respect to the vaccines we're working on right now
1: yeah so although some of the vaccines are, as we know are those RNA vaccines that are are much more um that you can you can decode a a um Mutated uh, version of the, of the virus, de- decode it, and develop a new R- RNA vaccine fairly quickly, conceptually at least. Mm-hmm. And so we're 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 in a scientific position where where it might be possible to respond pretty quickly. But the problem is uh, the it's and this is Larry Brilliant's point, who worked on the small parks er- eradication. He said producing you know scientifically conceptualizing and producing the vaccine is in some ways the the, the simplest step. Yeah, it's hard but it's not the, 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 the hardest
0: the, point part. Yeah,
1: the, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's the better way to say it. Hard but not the hardest part. The hardest part is is organizing the global system in a cooperative way in the bifurcated conflicting world that we have so that you can vaccinate or make safe, you know, eight plus billion people. And that's that's the challenge.
0: Right, and it's actually not bifurcated anymore because it was bifurcated in the Cold War. The
1: wrong term, wrong but term. Yeah. Right now, it's Mul-
0: multi, multi-pronged.
1: Yeah. Pronged. What's the what's what, what's the, what's the term for what, yeah. what's the multiple of bifurcated, whatever that term is.
0: <laughs> well, decentralized and, and more and more kind of chaotic, if you will. That's why. Well,
1: it's, yeah, it's that, it's that favorite term of VUCA that a lot of people use. Right. Volatile, volatile, uncertain. What's to see? Um, Complex. Complex, but also chaotic. Right. I, 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 whenever right. I see that, I chaotic. think that the word should be chaotic mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's the world, right? Korean. But and it's not a, it's not a good world for dealing with pandemics.
0: Absolutely, but unfortunately, our problems are many and numerous, and we're going to have to figure out how to navigate yeah. through them. The
1: pandemic the, is the, among the smallest ones of them, perhaps. Yes, I, I agree, but but it is. It's a nice little test case for the very, the, the the number one global problem that you and I talked about earlier in our conversation today, which was, was to so, somehow achieve a level of uh, global cooperation uh, to deal with these otherwise uh, large challenges, and that 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 is their prerequisite. And whether that's a, um, you know, a new set of institutions, uh, or whether that's uh, better use of the institutions that that we have. Uh, combined with the compassion that you talked about from from the Dalai Lama, that that's 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 the game. That's the ball game in in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, in a way, it's like a general rehearsal, if you will, because it could have been a lot worse. Our future problems would be a lot bigger and a lot worse. Uh, And and so this is like a general rehearsal, and if we fail the rehearsal, then kind of forget about the bigger issues, the the actual performance. But if we succeed here, we can learn even from our mistakes, and then we can have better chance to resolve the bigger issues. Absolutely. Uh, Glenn, we've been talking for over two hours, so unfortunately I can talk to you forever. But let me ask you this, where can people find more about you and your work for anyone who wants to follow you more closely?
1: It's, it's very simple, uh, futurist.com. Futurist.com.
0: Uh,
1: futurist.com. Just come to futurist.com, uh, and uh, from from there, they, they, can, they can track me. They can find me on social media under my name and all the various uh, social media platforms. Uh, but uh, the best place is to come to, to futurist.com. is the best place to contact me. And what's the best way to- and, and what's the best way
0: to send people off then? What's the, the one perhaps most important
1: single message that you want to send us away with? So if I had a final message, which I share with, with all kinds of audiences and clients that I've worked with over the years, is this, the future is not something that just happens to us. The future is something that we do. Now, there are things that happen in the world and in the future that that we have no control over and that we have to adjust to, but to a very large degree, We do make choices that create the future based on our images. So the question is, what's what's that image? The future is not something that just happens to us, it's something that we do. So ultimately, the question is, what future do we want? That's the message. Wow, I love that. Glenn Hamstra, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Great, great conversation. Appreciate everything that you're doing. These are, these are really uh, great conversations that you've done. Thank you very much.
0: If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.